working amongst um, uh, uh, teenagers uh, school um, and then subsequently I heard about what God was doing here in this church by virtue of the fact that I was on the board of the church patronage trust and one of the other trustees was a man called Ken Habersham um, <clears throat> who started the Pathfinder movement in the country <clears throat> and Ken kept saying have you heard what Julian Henderson is doing in Claygate? It's a wonderful work. And it was at the time that you were building the extension, which in most church leaders' minds, if you have to do work in the building, is because God is doing something spiritually in the people. And it's to accommodate the growth in the church, the numerical growth in the church, that normally buildings are altered. So to, to Ken, that was a great sign of God at work amongst you as people. So it's quite fun for me to be here now in a place that I've heard about but not actually been to previously. Um, I want to start, if I may, by th- using this little uh, phrase, which you've probably seen or heard on many occasions. History is his story. The story of the world, history, in whatever people group it is, is to some extent the story of God in, at work, and through his people. So your story has its most significance as an individual when your story is linked with the story of God. The story of God, what he's longing to do is bring all humanity into life in all its fullness in Jesus. To bring people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on earth into the relationship with God that God originally created human beings to be in. And when you link your story with the story of what God is seeking to do in his world, oh my goodness, you have security in your identity. I'm a true child of God and I have significance in the way what I'm doing in my life because I'm living with an incredible purpose which my story is fitting in with God's story. And when that uh, happens in significant ways, at moments in human history, um, church's history, we call those periods revival. And when there is a revival, which is a period of time in which thousands of people give their lives to Christ, join churches, have their lives transformed, and then transform their communities, when that happens with thousands of people in a short space of time, then people say, can see it and measure it sociologically. In such, it has such impact, it's called a revival. That's a clear example of when God's story and our story truly come together and everybody knows it. Now, we're here today, you're here today, I'm here today, as a result of a promise that Jesus made 2,000 years ago. This is the promise. I will build my church. You will remember the words. <coughs> They're spoken to Simon Peter. If you move on to the next slide. When... Um, Jesus has asked the question, uh, who do you say that I am? And various answers are given, and, uh, uh, and then P- Peter stumbles across this one. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies in the next slide, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. The promise is, I will build my church. There has always been a question around, what is the rock? And depending on your theological position or churchmanship, you intend to interpret it differently. So you can interpret it as Peter, because actually that's what his name went, Rocky. That was his nickname, Rocky. So Jesus might be saying, Rocky, you know, it's on you that the church is going to be built in the future. And that actually, that's the Catholic view, which, you know, Peter was the first bishop of Rome, and then every subsequent bishop is in the apostolic session 
of every subsequent pope is in the apostolic succession, and so it's on that rock, the Catholic Church, that the church has been built. On the other hand, the more Protestant people say, the rock is not Peter, but the statement that Peter has made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, nobody is born again into the church unless they make a personal confession of faith that Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God. And when we make that personal confession of faith and put our trust in him, God adds us to the church. So this is the church built on the rock, which is the statement about Jesus Christ. What a lot of people don't understand is that there's a third interpretation of that text as well. And that becomes... uh, Next um, slide, please. Because Jesus says, My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. In other words, the rock on which the church is built is the supernatural activity of God. And the truth is no one can be born again by the Spirit unless it's by the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Nobody can have their eyes open to the truth unless it's by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Nobody can have their heart changed unless it's by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is basically saying that the church in the future will only continuously be being built by and through and in and amongst a group of people who are truly sensitive to the continuous ministry of the Holy Spirit as the Father speaks and does his work. Now, I don't know where you're going to take your, take your money, pay your money and take your choice, but in fact, all three are needed. There needs to be objective truth. Jesus is the Son of the living God. There needs to be people who are courageous enough to tell others about that message. And they're all, but even when they tell them about that message, there needs to be the supernatural revelatory of the work of the Holy Spirit for anybody to believe that message. So all are true. But here's, here's the bottom line. We are only here because the Lord Jesus Christ, and praise God that we are here, has kept his promise and he's building his church still today, 2,000 years later. And that's why we can look into the future, even though there are many uncertainties in our society on the one hand and in our national Anglican church on the other, we can look into the future with confidence that he will continue to build his church. And so when you, next slide please, when you devise your mission statement as a church and your values on which you will build the church, that comes about as a result of you seeking the Lord Jesus Christ and listening to the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And I was very impressed looking at the flowchart on the wall at the back, the way in which you've undertaken that work in this last year and have now got to a place where you're articulating This is, we believe, the church that our Lord Jesus Christ is building in this place, Claygate, in this season for this time. And if it really is to have life, if it really is to grow, if it really is to be the hope for the community in which you're placed, then that can only be the case as the Spirit of God brings it all to life. And so I want to speak for a moment about the combination of two really important things which characterize every church and should be every individual believer. Next slide, please. We need to learn what it means to be both naturally supernatural and supernaturally natural. These two things are meant to be entirely joined together. It's not that we're meant to be people with, of, of reason and using our minds only. Neither is it meant to be, peop- we're meant to be people who only believe in the supernatural activity of God. 
We are human beings created with a mind, and we're meant to have the mind of Christ, and at the same time, we're utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit for everything that God is going to do in his world. We're natural and we're supernatural with, uh, both at the same time. Now, I'm a product of the mid-20th century where the worldview of the Western world, in which I was born, was of scientific rationalism. Now, what that meant in the Christian world was that reason was more important than experience. And if there was a choice, do I trust my experience or do I trust reason, I must trust my reason, not my experience. We now live in the 21st century where postmodernism rules okay or not okay, depending on your view. But what that means is that now experience is trusted more than reason. So your truth is dependent on your experience. And what's true for you in your experience may be true for you in your experience, but me and my experience, well, that's another truth altogether. And you've got to be true to yourself, believe your experience, and I've got to be true to my, myself, which is believe my experience, and there's no such thing as really objective truth any longer. Now, neither the 20th century scientific rationalism nor the 21st century postmodernism is biblical. The biblical worldview is that we are both natural and supernatural at the same time. Both reason and experience, our encounter with the Holy Spirit, are both critical. Just as I, as a human being, need my left and my right foot if I'm to go on a journey, and I need to operate both for my journey to progress, so also I need to learn what it means to think naturally with my reason and also to relate supernaturally to the activity of the Spirit. If I only or ever step forward with one foot, I will always go round in a circle. Whichever foot it is, that leads. And those that are stuck just with their mind will never actually move forward with the Spirit of God in mission and ministry to a waiting world appropriately or adequately. And similarly, those who are totally dependent on a personal experience will always be looking for the next experience rather than being empowered by God to take the gospel to the waiting world. We need both supernatural and natural understanding and in our lives. Does that make sense so far? Now that's all by way of introduction <laughs> to the Bible passage that I really want to speak about. And if you want to follow it in the Bible, it's in Acts chapter 4. And uh, uh, Anne spoke from some of it this morning. And I'm going to speak some, from some more of it this evening. And I've got four things that I want to comment on briefly if I have time. If I haven't, I have to miss off at least one of them. Um, the word I'm going to use, it's 1095 and 6. Um, in the church Bible. The word I'm going to use is a word that you'll be very familiar with, each of the four points. And it's a word around which we can use our reason very easily. But then I'm going to have an adjective alongside that noun, and it's the adjective that tips it into a sort of supernatural experience or activity rather than just leaves it as a reasoned activity. And the words are... Boldness, faith, prayer, and generosity. And now I'm going to 
put the words with them one by one after another as I speak. So the first thing I want to talk about is extreme boldness. Everybody knows that we need to be bold about Jesus. But what is it that really makes us extremely bold? And in the biblical narrative, and in my experience of Christians around the world, it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit that makes us extremely bold, rather than just makes us think, I ought to be bold. So what I know I ought to be only becomes possible as a result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that comes through in this passage in numbers of different places. This story is a story of Peter and John having, um, coming out of, uh, or being, shall I say, being arrested after they had been used by God to bring healing to the lame man at the beautiful gate. And they arrest Peter and John, and they are uh, wondering what on earth they should do. And in verse 13, it says, The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the Scriptures. They also recognized them as men who'd been with Jesus. You see, it says there they hadn't had a lot of Bible teaching. It wasn't just their reasoning around what they ought to be like, because the Bible tells us what we ought to be like. But they hadn't even had all that Bible teaching. But what they had had was an encounter with the living Jesus. And it's when that happens that they become really bold. Um, Interestingly, of course, um, they had been told by Jesus in his sort of uh, last command to them, go into the whole world and tell everybody. Now, I don't know what you would have felt if... He, the Lord, was here tonight. How many are here, in the, in, here to, today, tonight? I'm just looking around. What does it look like? 80, 100? Okay. Uh, on, on the Mount of Ascension, we're told there may, be about, may have been about 150, 250 people on the Mount of Ascension. Remember, they didn't have jet planes in those days. They, they didn't even have, you know, uh, boats that went fast. They only had sails. Uh, they had no motor cars. They're being told to go to every people group in the whole world and tell them about Jesus. What would you have been left feeling? Help! How do we do that? Um, I have no doubt that when Jesus said, go and pray and wait for the power of the Spirit to come upon you, they were very glad because they knew they couldn't do it in their own... They couldn't just obey the command. How on earth could they obey, obey that command? So they knew they needed some supernatural empowering if they were to obey the command. So they'd gone back and they'd prayed, and they'd prayed for 10 days nonstop, the whole church. That marks them out differently from us. When we tried to get the whole church to pray, we got a percentage, 10 for first day. The 10 went down in percentage terms to about 1 at the end of a 10-day prayer period. I remember this because, you know, only some people believed that God might answer the prayer after 10 days. You know, some people kept dropped out day by day. It says the whole lot prayed for 10 days and suddenly the Holy Spirit comes and it's the result of this encounter with the Holy Spirit that they suddenly begin to do what Jesus had told them to do. They knew they ought to be bold, but they could not be bold without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so now we get to this point and Peter has preached... He's preached a sermon in which um, 3,000 got converted and then at the beginning of the chapter 4 it says, now there are 5,000 men. Did you say earlier on that I'd preached lots of sermons? Or was that as we were praying? I can't remember now. It, was it? I can't remember when, but I did say it. Okay, well, it was perhaps before when we were praying. He said, John's probably preached thousands of sermons, but he's never preached one in this place. Help him, Lord, basically, was what he said. So... <laughs> 
Um, I'm aware I've preached thousands of sermons. Have I seen 3,000 converted at one of them? I don't think I have. <laughs> Might get three, four, five sometimes. This is amazing, incredible boldness and uh, appropriateness. It comes with the cutting power of the Holy Spirit such that thousands are converted. Anyway, um, so uh, you know that uh, the, the council then tell Peter and John to shut up, stop speaking about Jesus. And so the next slide, Peter and John reply saying, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we've seen and heard. Um, then it goes on. Uh, later on, they get to this prayer that I've referenced already. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then he go, they, it goes on again. After they'd prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So there was something in the prayer, God make us bold, just like there'd been something in the prayer between the Ascension and Pentecost, send your spirit of power. And there was something in the answer to the prayer that actually was physical and visible. Then it was tongues and praising of God at Pentecost. And now here, it's the building itself was being shaken by the wind and the power of the Spirit of God. How secure is this building? I mean, it's beyond reason, isn't it? That's, a, it's, that's not a reasonable statement to make. Friends, sometimes I think we're just too reasonable, which made us, made us too safe. If God shook this place as we were worshipping tonight, I tell you one thing, we'd all have a story to tell when we went somewhere tomorrow, wouldn't we? And probably we would tell the story. I remember a time when the Spirit of God was coming powerfully upon us in our church in North London, and uh, there was one girl who, we had a, a conference over the weekend, and uh, the power of God was manifest. People fell under the power of God sometimes. There was some weeping, there was some laughing. Um, one girl went to work, she was a young physiotherapist, she went to work the next Monday morning, and as she walked into uh, the coffee place where they were having coffee at a break time, one of her fellow um, physiotherapists, well, tell me what happened to you at the weekend. She said, well, what do you mean? She says, you look completely different. So she began to tell something of the story of what had happened in the church that weekend. That was a, a, a period for her of amazing testifying about God, sharing of, a faith, of her faith with people who did not yet know Jesus. And I think one or two of her friends gave their lives to the Lord as a result of that. Lord, send your spirit. Give us a boldness that comes and only can come from your spirit, we pray. Um, why is it that Leah Sharibu, a 15-year-old teenager in northern Nigeria, has the courage to say, not to uh, uh, convert to, or at least say a prayer pretending that she's converting to um, uh, Islamic faith. My understanding, it's only because God has given her a supernatural ability to do that. Uh, do we have any 15-year-olds here? No, 20-year-olds here? Anybody in their early 20s here, roughly? You know, 15 to 25, let's take a wider age gap. Okay, would, do, would one of you young women like to stand up, please? All right, safety in numbers, two or three of you stand up together. These people here, I mean, this girl is younger than these, 
these young women here. And I wouldn't like, like to see any of you in that position. Would you like to be in that position? And you're probably thinking, I don't know that I could do that. Are you thinking that? I'm thinking, I don't know that I could do that. Thank you so much. Um, God, we need supernatural impartation of boldness. And then that we continue to act naturally and supernaturally at the same time, we pray. That's the first thing. Um, The second thing is prayer. This is an example in prayer. I've called it exemplary prayer exemplary prayer in an era in which we don't necessarily and a way in which we don't necessarily pray. I don't know what motivates you to pray a lot of the time, but most of the time I'm motivated to pray when either I don't have what I want or I'm in difficulty. Lord, give me this, or please sort this one out, Lord. Now, to some extent, they were in difficulty. I mean, they had just been arrested, they'd been warned, Jesus had been not only arrested, but he'd been crucified. They knew something of the consequence of speaking about Jesus now. And when they uh, um, uh, are released, they go back to the disciples. And the extraordinary thing is, (laughs) they basically pray the same thing they've been praying before. It's like somebody that's just sort of walked into a... A boxing ring with, uh, um, in the old days, a Frank Bruno or a uh, Mike Tyson or a Muhammad Ali and nowadays Joshua, whatever his name is, I can't remember. And they've been socked in the face by this heavyweight boxer. Uh, they've been knocked out and um, they get out, they're taken out of the ring to recover for a bit. And then they say, please may I go back in again? Here's my chin. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. We Make us bold. Stretch out your hand to heal. They were bold. They had stretched out their hands to heal and God had healed somebody. They'd got slapped down for it and basically say, we'd like to do that again, Lord. <laughs> I think that's extraordinary, don't you? Um, you know, look, we live at a time right now in our country where we're talking about the rising opposition to Christian faith in the nation and how relatively difficult it is now to speak about Jesus in a public place or to live with Christian morality. Come on. When you hear about people like Leah, you realize it's not difficult here, is it? And we tend to think, Lord, please keep me safe. And we tend to retreat when life gets tough or when we get criticized. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that at work again uh, because it got me into difficulty the last time. What they do is they go back, they pray together, they pray together again, say, Lord, continue to make us bold and continue to stretch out your hand to heal, we pray. Um, let's just look at the prayer a bit more precisely. When they heard the report, all the believers, that's very interesting, all again, there's, there's power in united prayer. When a whole church starts praying, Lord, send your spirit, Lord, give us boldness. Lord, stretch out your hand to heal. Something happens because there's power in united prayer. So all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer, and they start by saying, O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. In other words, God, you're still in charge of your universe. That's why I started with his story. History is his story. He's still in charge. Whatever is happening in my life, whatever is happening in my family, Whatever is happening in my church or my community that may be difficult at the moment, he is still the sovereign Lord. And we need to keep regaining that perspective, starting our prayers with that understanding of who this God that we're talking to really is. 
You spoke, next slide, long ago by the Holy Spirit. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. Next slide. The people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. In other words, in the redemptive purposes of God, something great can happen out of something that appears to be a disaster. It was a disaster that their Lord and leader, Jesus Christ, was crucified, humanly speaking. But actually, God understood the need for this, and that out of this apparent disaster would come something that would actually not only shock, but transform the world. The grave was empty. Jesus was raised. We now discover and see the power of God at work in life in a way we've never seen it before. We now know that this sovereign Lord is able to overcome every difficulty in human life and the last enemy one day which will be destroyed for everybody is death itself. He has been given, we know now, power, uh, all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. Again, amongst the last words of Jesus. And that's what these disciples knew. And in their prayer, that's basically what they're rehearsing. God, you are the Lord. God, even when it looks like there's a disaster, you're able to bring something fantastic out of it. That's what happened with Jesus. Therefore, and now the prayer goes on. Therefore, uh, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Um, A couple of years ago, CSW brought an Eritrean believer to the UK to speak, Helen Belhani. And she was um, an evangelist that would go on the streets. And she was arrested, put in in prison, and spent uh, some time in solitary confinement. But prison for her was a metal container. You know, the metal containers you see in shipping docks or on transportation lorries. And if you can imagine a metal container in the desert, you will understand that by day it gets boiling hot and at night it gets freezing cold. And she was in this metal container, I can't remember for how many years, sometimes on her own, sometimes with others. You know, everything happened in the container. She was occasionally fed horrible food. Uh, There was a pan in the corner for the toilet, which wasn't very often emptied. You know, she lived in this place. And she, because she was a, a, a worshipper, a natural worshipper, she just kept singing songs of praise to Jesus in the way that she had done outside, in the way she did on the streets. That's what she did in the container. The guards were absolutely infuriated by her singing of praise to Jesus. So they took her out one time and said, Stop singing about your Jesus! And she basically said, I can't stop singing about my Jesus because he is all that I have and he is the one I love. I will always sing about my Jesus. So this happened a couple of times and she kept singing. And then they took her out again and said, well, at least stop singing so loud. (laughs) And I think it was that guard that she subsequently led to faith in Jesus. In other words, we're not going to change. We're going to go on. But how do we do that? In my understanding, it's only because of the supernatural activity of the Spirit. We know on the one hand, we reason, we must go on, but actually we can't really go on unless the Holy Spirit empowers us to go on. So that was their exemplary prayer, and it results in extraordinary faith. 
Now remember, faith, according to Hebrews 11, is the assurance of what we hope for and the certainty of what we do not see. Which means that it operates in an area and beyond what we reason with our minds or see uh, naturally. Our eyes see things naturally. Faith operates beyond what we see naturally. Hope is something about the future which nobody can see. And so when we make a declaration about Jesus, it's as a result of faith. When we lay hands on somebody and pray for them for healing, it's as a result of faith. We're declaring something that we cannot yet see. So that's what they do here. By what power? Uh, This is now Peter saying in answer to their questioning about how did you do that. He says, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, we're being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man. Do you want to know how he was healed? Next slide. Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. And then it goes on, for Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures uh, where it says, the stone that you build is rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So what, what Peter is saying is this. This Jesus is beyond your understanding of Jesus. This Jesus is the unique savior of the world. Now, that is beyond human reason. And if you talk to lots of people in the world today about (coughs) uh, world faiths, most of them would put them, oh, they're about equal. (laughs) Faith says they're not. Faith says there's something unique about Jesus that makes him the only mediator between human beings and God. Faith says that actually because he was raised from the dead, anyone in Christ will also be raised from the dead. We can't prove that by reason. But faith is an assurance that that is the case because Jesus has said it and Jesus was raised. Therefore, in Christ, we will also be raised. When you have that extraordinary faith like that, then you are able to speak with authority to people who have no faith. And you're able to tell them, let me tell you about my Jesus. This is my Jesus. And the first thing you start to say to them about this Jesus Well, what's the first thing you do when you start praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven. So the first thing you tell them about Jesus is, do you know what the name of Jesus means? It means Savior. His parents were called to to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. We hallow the name of Jesus, in other words, in our testifying about Jesus. And oh, as a church, some aspects of the church, we've stopped doing that. What that means is we deal with the real issues of life, the stuff that's gone wrong in life. That's what sin is. This Jesus has come to deal with the stuff that's gone wrong in our lives. He's, He's dealt with the stuff that's gone wrong in my life. We say to our friends, this Jesus can deal with the stuff that's gone wrong in your life. You don't have to be perfect to come to Jesus. In fact, that's no good because you wouldn't have a need of Jesus for that. But if stuff's ever gone wrong in your life, this Jesus has come to sort out that mess. And that's a declaration of faith. And we can make that declaration of faith with absolute assurance when the Holy Spirit makes us certain about it as well. And then it comes across with an authority from our lips. It's extraordinary faith. 
It's an extraordinary faith that goes into the temple one day, as Peter and John had gone into the temple to worship that day, and they'd gone into the temple on the same route, probably through the same beautiful gate, on many other occasions. Even they probably accompanied Jesus through the same gate into the temple, and Jesus had done nothing about this man who's always there begging. He was lame. And on this occasion, as they walk by the same man that they'd walked past on many other occasions, that suddenly they feel a prompting from the Holy Spirit as he's saying to them, give me some money. They look at him and they say, we haven't got any money, but what we have got, we will give you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. That's extraordinary faith, isn't it? How do you do that stuff? We know we all need to have an assurance. But actually having the assurance and saying something like that in a moment like that, how does that come? That's where the supernatural and the natural combine. We know we ought to have it. We haven't got it, but we're saying, therefore, God, by your spirit, please, please give it to me. And amazingly, the man got up and walked. And then the rest of the story obviously unfolds as a result of the extraordinary faith. But they'd got the extraordinary faith because they'd been praying for days beforehand, send your spirit. Does this make any sense to you? I cannot live the life that is described to me in the Bible unless I start living it supernaturally. It's only by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit of the living God that I can begin to live the life that Jesus intended me to live. When I start to live life like that, oh my goodness, what an adventure unfolds to me. I mean, it could get a bit rocky from time to time. It could get a bit tricky. I could find myself in some awkward situations. But I'd prefer to be doing that and living more like Jesus than to be just trying to reason my way through my life until one day I'm pushing up the daisies. The fourth thing, which I will just headline for you as a church, because I think both you have experienced it in the past and I think you will experience it increasingly in the future, and that is extravagant generosity. The passage ends talking about the way in which these disciples uh, would sell their property and possessions and give each other as they had need, and such that in the end no one had need. All the believers were united in heart and mind. They felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. And the next slide, there was no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. That is transformation of the pocket the last place of a person's life to be transformed is normally their pocket unless God intervenes supernaturally when it often becomes the first. And the financial chaos of the church in this country is because we've been trying to be church without being a supernatural church. And if we pray that God would fill us with his spirit again, I believe we will suddenly find ourselves, not just you as a local church, but churches becoming the most extraordinary generous people on planet Earth. And of course, part of that is exhibited through what's now a measurable thing in our society, namely the impact of what faith communities, which means principally Christian churches, have done for the sake of the poor in this nation. So that the setting up of uh, Christians Against Poverty centers all around the country, the setting up of food banks, and I see you even have one that you contribute to here in, in Claygate, all around the country, all at the initiative of generous Christians. And the government are aware that without this, actually, they would be even more up the creek without a paddle than they are already. Um, and when, see how these Christians love one another becomes not just how they love one another, but see how they love the poor in their community, 
that's when the world will waken up to, what has made you like that? You used to hang on to your money beforehand. You used to line your own pocket in your own nest. Now you're giving it away. What's making you do that? It's Jesus. You know, we had a, a, a woman that worked a part-time secretary in our church. She was a single mom and uh, having difficulty raising her kids. Um, but she was trying to do that without working full-time so she could continue to give them as much time as she possibly could. And um, there was a guy in the church who uh, knew it was time to buy a new car. So instead of trading in his old car, he gave her his old car. So uh, a couple of weekends after that, she drove from London. Uh, her car was just about uh, packed up. She drove from London up to her home, which was, I can't remember whether it was Liverpool or Manchester. It was around that area of the country, and um, to a family event. And they all said to her, how did you... How did you afford that new car? I mean, it was only a couple of years old or something like that. And um, she said, well, actually, it was somebody in our church that gave me the car. Oh. She said it was the best moment for sharing her faith in Jesus that she had in her life with her family. It was the most powerful moment because they realized this Jesus changed people's attitude to everything money and possessions included. Now, I know I ought to become more generous, but what is it that makes me become more generous? Well, according to the scripture here, this is all as a result of the supernatural activity of God. So when my reason, which means I, I know what I ought to do, combines with, which I need to work at, because I don't always know what I ought to do, I need to work with scripture, I need to work with my mind all the time, but when that is activated by an infusion of the power of the Holy Spirit, when I'm working in the natural and the supernatural at the same time, me, I personally, we as family, we as church family, become an altogether different people. We become a people who become the hope of the nation. And I know that's what you want to become. So what I'm going to ask us to do is, is to stand up. I'm going to, in just a moment, I'm going to ask us to pray th this, uh, this prayer in, in a few moments altogether, <clears throat> and I'm going to suggest one or two areas in which some of us might need to become bolder, and uh, we'll need an infusion of the Holy Spirit if we're to be bold like that. And um, if that is you, when I name one thing or another, then I want you really to be very definite and specific with the Lord. Say, Lord, I need boldness like that. Put your hand, as it were, across your heart at that moment. Say, I want that, Lord, because I want to be bold like that. Um, you don't have to yell it out loud like that, but if you did, I wouldn't silence you, you know, because we're Anglican here, so you know, I understand that. Um, so the general prayer is going to be for the Holy Spirit to come. The general prayer then, from the, which I will pray, the general prayer which your Lord pray, in, pray is the prayer that they prayed, the culmination of it. And then I'm going to lead us in one or two specific prayers where we might need more boldness. So the slide is number 13. Um, if you could go back to slide 13, please. I think. Was that slide 13 in that case? I've got it wrong then. It was in that case. Oh, yeah, that. Uh, no, people of Israel. It's the next slide. Sorry, the next slide. 
Thank you. Yeah, that's because I added the extra slide, didn't I? Thank you very much. I'd forgotten that. <coughs> okay. So that's the prayer I'm going to ask us all to pray out aloud in a few minutes' time. Be warned is a dangerous prayer. <laughs> but this is the big prayer I was referring to earlier. You know, what do I really want to happen in this nation? This is what I want to happen. There are some prayers that are recorded in the Bible. I don't know how many prayers the first Christians prayed. There's only some of the prayers that they prayed that are recorded in the Bible. My guess is that they, the Lord recorded the most important prayers, which is why I think this prayer is so important. Okay, why don't we stand? <clears throat> Uh, we used a song earlier on, which is a great song about consuming fire, fan into flame. And um, part of that imagery about the fire is like a sacrifice that we're offering. We're offering our own lives as a sacrifice. Romans chapter 12 says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. And then the fire from heaven comes and consumes the sacrifice, makes it acceptable to God. So I want you to encourage you to off yourself to the Lord again tonight. Here I am, Lord. Lord, I give you myself again. I give you my mind. I give you my heart. I give you my spirit. I give you my body. I give you myself, Lord. <clears throat> 